Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Balkum, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. So we're making pretty good progress here on this tiny book series, and we're going to get to an interesting spot today and a couple of more. We've already established, I think, pretty clearly that big things really can come in small packages, and there are some big things in these little books, Second and Third John, Philemon, Obadiah, Nahum, Jude, Titus, Second Thessalonians, Haggai, and Habakkuk. And 11, 12, and 13 are pretty good, too. So we'll see if we get to a few of those, maybe. We're kind of trying to gauge our time and see what happens. We can study these pretty easily, not only because we can read them in one sitting, but because they're simple little personal letters, short stories, sometimes early warnings. So we've seen all of those by this point in time. And because they really only have usually one theme. Uh, Even today, uh, Titus is a little bigger book, but it's just got one theme with a few kind of subplots that are going on at the same time time. We're making tremendous progress. Second and third John we studied together. Philemon we looked at. What a fascinating book, and it'll play in today a little bit. I'll speak about it momentarily. Obadiah and Nahum we looked at together, and we looked last week at Jude, a book I'd never preached before, but there was some good stuff there. And so you can see where we're turning our attention next. But let me ask if you've turned your attention to this. Okay, so Marin raised the issue. How many of you are paying close attention to the news? I mean, uh, it's going to be a steady stream right now. Uh, Probably a lot of you just paid close attention to your 401ks this past week. That's my guess. And that you were at least least thinking about it, even if you were disciplining yourself not to look. Hope you were conservatively invested last week. Might be true this week. Uh, So let me tell you that we have been thinking about this. This does play into the sermon. Just stick with me. But I also want to talk to you about this for a moment because we have been doing contingency planning for the better part of a month at Columbia. I think most churches are going to be caught completely flat-footed if there is a significant disruption. And I think that's becoming increasingly likely. We only gained the capacity to really test this past weekend. Uh, So we don't know where the disease really is. Uh, This morning there was a case reported in Rhode Island. That's awful close to home. Uh, So I think there's a pretty good case we could deal with disruption. I will tell you, I think the societal disruption will be worse than the illness itself. But that being the case, disruption is a problem for local churches, and, uh, and churches better be thinking about this. So consider the way we operate, okay? Consider all that we do. First of all, we're all about getting together like this, right? And the reality is that if we can't get together like this for any period of time, it will be a significant disruption to the fellowship of our church. So we've been thinking a lot about that, for example. We've been making plans for virtual worship, should it need to happen. That means music would probably be led at one place, and the preaching would happen another, and somehow it would all tie in, and you'd be able at least once a week uh, to tune in and to be part of your community of faith. Uh, I'd keep teaching the tiny books of the Bible, assuming that's where we were in that time. we just keep moving right along. We wouldn't even really try a break stride as much as possible. We know that our small groups will want to gather too. Our leaders need a way to talk. Uh, We're using a tool called Zoom. I don't know how many of you are familiar with it. I think it's the best thing out there like it. Uh, So we have a pretty sizable account at the church, but we're also asking all of our ignition group leaders, all of our small group leaders to get free Zoom accounts so they could host not just weekly, but maybe even biweekly gatherings of their group. People, if they're caged in and they can't get out, it's going to be difficult not to have fellowship with folk. And so a group met this morning and talked about 
uh, doing this and we're making preparations uh, for that. Uh, by the way, Maren, uh, I, I got to figure a way to get you on one of these. Maren brings it when she does that thing. Like I saw her down here this morning. I was excited. But I am a little worried. I got to tell you. Okay. All right. So you really got me worried here. So so at any rate, uh, we want to make sure that we can get leaders together too. Uh, we'll have to keep responding to need. One of the interesting things about this, wherever it's happening, is that those who have crisis can't get response because it's all being eaten up by uh, the coronavirus, COVID-19. And so, you know, we'll need to continue to respond. Uh, so we have tooled our deacons. We've asked them to be prepared to call their families twice a week to check in on them to make sure they're okay. We've asked our ignition group leaders to do the same thing and then to go up the line to us and let us know where there's need in the congregation. It could be anything from people don't have food uh, to somebody is sick and need transportation uh, to somebody has passed away, God forbid, whatever the case would be. We want to be ready to respond in that circumstance. Now, there are a lot of other things that you probably don't think about. Columbia is a pretty big business operation. It's roughly a $10 million a year nonprofit. And, And that being the case, we wrote paychecks in 2019 to over 200 people. That's how many people I oversee. And so that includes our school. It includes uh, our custodial staff. It includes the people, some of the people on our mission team. I mean, it's a broad group of people. And like any business, these people depend on us uh, for their well-being. And so one of the things that I have to think about if we're going to be a healthy church is how I make sure that people are able to get their paychecks. And that includes people who are hourly rate wage earners. So our hourly wage earners here, just like anywhere, we have a pretty sizable group of people who punch clocks. That is, we get paid for the hours they work. What happens if they can't work those hours? We'll try to find ways people can do some work virtually, and we'll do a lot of work virtually, but some things won't be able to be done. So we want to make sure that those part-time employees can receive their average pay every week because they're probably the ones who need it most. Do you agree with me? We want to make sure we take care of them uh, because that's, that's one of my first and primary responsibilities. I love the staff team. I want to make sure they're cared for. Uh, so also, if our schools should shut down, and that may be one of the strongest likelihoods, if schools in the area are shut down, it means our CDC shut down. It is an ongoing operation, what happens there, and we have uh, looked at some things we can do. We're already in contact with our families about what we would do in those circumstances. Uh, we've checked into all of our insurances, our business insurances, to make sure we have continuing business insurance, all the things that we will need in a moment like this. Let me ask you to remember us. Um, there could be a chance that you're not here. And if you are, uh, just the honest truth is you have a snow day, you never recover financially. So what happens if you have three of those in a row or something like that? Uh, be sure you can, you can continue to give, please. Um, find a way to do that. If you're like me, think carefully about it. My money comes straight from the bank. It just comes in a check to the church every week. In fact, they usually put it in my box when they see my name on it, and I have to shift it to the finance office box. I do that because I don't like the idea of somebody taking a percentage of what I give, which is what happens in some online methodologies. But that might be how I have to give if we're separated because the church is going to need the money. It's going to be hard to process. We're making sure, however, we can do all our business operations virtually. So could they be done from home? Could we file payroll? Could we process gifts? Could we do all those things? That's what we've been asking, and that's what we've asked our business operations to tool up to do. So uh, there's a lot involving just the business of being church, and and, uh, we're on top of that. Let me talk to you personally. I hope you're prepared. I I don't think you need to go get masks, quite honestly, uh, but I do think you need food. Uh, So are you ready uh, to be in your home for two or three weeks if that were necessary? Could be even longer. Some parts of the world it's been longer. 
Uh, and the answer when I talked to our staff team for a number of them was no. Uh, one person told me they couldn't go three days. I said, you better stock up. It's kind of intriguing. I, I don't often say I admire things that, uh, that the Mormon church does, but this is kind of smart. Did you know that if you are a Mormon believer, you have to have one year of supplies at all times? My next door neighbors were Mormons, good people, good friends. Uh, they had a whole room committed to this. And I once asked uh, uh, Scott, I said, Scott, tell me, uh, do you really think you'll need this? And he goes, well, who knows? But my question is not only whether I need it, but do you? If something should happen, could I take care of your family too? And I admired that. I thought, that's how we ought to think. And that's how you ought to be thinking too. Not just can you feed your family, but can you feed your neighbors? Can you take care of the people around you? Can you take care of people that you may not even know? Can you do that? Because that's what the church of Jesus Christ does. So it's a good time for you to make a run, get stocked up, uh, just to make sure you have the provisions that you need. You need the medication you need for a month, whatever you have. It's a good time to have that on hand. I don't think we should be afraid, but one of the things that keeps me from being afraid, Marin, is to be prepared, right? I was a Boy Scout, despite my risk. I think. So <clears throat> I think that you need to be thinking about this. And let me tell you, this, this can be a shining moment for the church of Jesus Christ. My big goal is that we be so prepared and healthy that when something happens, we're responding to need instead of worrying about our own survival. I don't think the church should be worried about itself ever. So we need to be in a position not to be worried about ourselves, but to be worried about the community around us. Amen? So you are the church wherever you go. Remember that. Wherever you go, you are Columbia. So wherever you are, be us. Be the hands and feet of the church. Don't wait for our initiative. Take the initiative to care for those around you if something should happen and to show concern for your neighbors. Uh, you know, I've got a list of phone numbers of all my immediate neighbors. I plan to call them and check on them if something happens here. Now, here's the thing. Okay, so you really have thought of this as a financial reality until now. I am guessing. I'm just saying I... I, I think we tend to be a culture that suppresses as long as we can. And so you've been thinking about this past week about your, your, your assets. You've wondered about them, even if you haven't checked on them. But I'm going to tell you, you won't care anything about your 401k if you or someone you love gets, it gets ill. And I know this not just from watching people across over 30 years of ministry, but from my own personal experience. I happen to know this saying of Augustine Bureau's is true. When you have your health, you have everything. When you don't have your health, nothing else matters at all. Now, that's not really a Christian perspective, is it? And it's not what we believe. We, we, we believe that no second death can touch us, as Assisi said. We believe that we were created not for time, but for eternity. That said, man, when something happens to your health, you really don't care about anything else. I desperately remember when my youngest daughter was ill and her life was threatened. I mean, what she was dealing with could take her life. And I desperately remember the foxhole prayers I prayed even though I knew better. I couldn't help it. So I was calling out to God, yelling to God and saying to him, take whatever else you want. Take my home, take my livelihood, take my career, take it all. In fact, Lord, take my life but not hers. And you'll pray that prayer too if somebody around you is significantly or seriously ill. See, health is everything, at least in terms of our experience of life on earth. 
as we're here. We can't get away from it. And what I want to tell you is that that's not only true for you individually or for your family. It's true for the company you lead or work for. It's true for the nonprofit you lead or work for. It's true for your ministry. It is true for a nation. It is true for a church. Health is everything. If you're not healthy, you can't do anything. A few years ago, one of the most meaningful staff retreats we've ever had, we do two a year, and I, I led our, our group through a Patrick Lencioni book. I love Patrick Lencioni. He wrote a book called The Advantage. It's just a little book. I, I recommend it to anyone who's a leader. And his basic thing is there is one huge advantage, and it is health. And he defined health as the way we relate to each other, the way we lead, the way our organizations are governed, the way we handle conflict, the way we care for one another is health. And he says, if an organization has health, it can do almost anything. Without it, it can do absolutely nothing. I buy into that. So I have done everything in my power over my 18 years as pastor here to build health and strength into Columbia, to make Columbia what I often call an island of health and strength. Churches among all places should be islands of health and strength. But let me tell you something, healthy churches are hard to find. I've been a part of some sick churches in my life. And I've decided I never want to lead one of those. And a lot of it has to do with leadership, transparent and honest leadership that people can trust and depend on, consistency. A lot of it is that. And so I just tell you, don't take for granted the health we have at Columbia. It's an amazingly healthy place. And it is because you made it that way. That's why. Because of the way you behave, the way you act, the way you relate to each other, it really is up to you. Now, why am I talking so much about health? Because believe it or not, that's what Titus is about. Titus is a really interesting book historically because it gives us a window into a couple of things that we might not otherwise see. And in this case, you need to understand that Titus is all about the health of the church and therefore it's ability to impact unhealthy cultures. Okay, so let's, let's give some thought to that. It's a little book, so we don't look at it much. It's longer than some of the ones we've looked at. It's a, it's a big little book, if you will. That's an oxymoron, but it's bigger than some of the ones we've looked at. It's three chapters. It's the sixth shortest book in the Bible. So what you need to know is that traditionally, the letter to Titus is ascribed to Paul. Now, I'm going to just be honest with you and tell you that the pastoral epistles, that is 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, are more debated relative to authorship than any other books in the New Testament. So if you're going to go to a New Testament class in college, trust me, you'll deal with this issue. You'll deal with it again in seminary. You're going to deal with this. And the reason is because the form of these books is different than the books we know for sure Paul wrote, like Romans and 1st Corinthians and stuff like that. So it, it takes a different form. So some scholars have asked, huh, did, did Paul write this? Another reason is because some of the concerns reflected in these books, some scholars think might be later than Paul's life. And if that's the case, then obviously Paul couldn't have written them. But here's what I want to tell you. Traditionally, across church history, most people have regarded these books as written by Paul. In fact, the early church fathers, most of them, thought that Paul wrote these books, and I think that a lot of scholars have tended to say there are numerous reasons why these could be different. So some conservative scholars have essentially said, first of all, they're quick books, so maybe Paul just fired them off to handle a situation. They're not the same as a tome like Romans. But more likely, he might have used a secretary 
So there might have been hundreds of little letters like this that were written either from Paul or from the leadership team that Paul created. And what I'm going to tell you is this either is from Paul or it's from the leadership team that he created that lived beyond him. So I'm not really worried about whether this is written by Paul. I know it is a Pauline book of concern, if you will. And that's, for today's lesson, what we need to most worry about. If you want to get deeper into that, be my guest. Okay, so second, Titus was and is in this book a Greek church leader on the island of Crete. Now, how many of you know the island of Crete? I'm curious. I've always wanted to go there. So have you ever visited Crete? Is it as beautiful as they say it is? I need to go? Okay, not right now maybe, but some other, okay, but I need to go? Okay, so I'd go right now. I'd probably, you could probably go pretty cheap right now, that's my guess. So, uh, so it's an interesting place. Now let me, let me show you, uh, just so you'll have some geograph- uh, geographical acclimation. This is Crete right here, okay? So it's one of the Greek islands. This is Greece in Paul's day with its labels, etc. And so you get a sense of where it is. And what you need to understand is that Crete was significant for a couple of reasons, though it was relatively insignificant compared to those other cities you have labeled there. That's an ancient, that's Paul's world, and you see nobody even bothered to label Crete, which is kind of intriguing in that particular case. Let me come back to that in a moment so you'll get a better sense of, of, uh, of what that's about. So if you, if you take a look at the Bible, we know who Titus is. 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 17, 23a, indisputably written by Paul. So this says, thanks be to God, Paul writes, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. Now this is about what we often call the Macedonian offering. It's about, it's about leaders in the church who wanted to make sure that the spread of the gospel was financed. And so they went to the wealthier parts of the church, places like Corinth, and they raised an offering to support the work of Paul and the other church-planting missionaries. So he says, as for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. So how much does Paul think of Titus? Well, I don't even have to read this. I can tell you, preachers love people like this. Do you think, how much do you think a pastor loves somebody who comes and says, Pastor, I'd like to take the initiative to make sure that the work we're doing is funded. I never say no to that if it's legal and ethical, okay? But I never go, nah, you can't do that. Never! So Titus went to Paul and said, I want to be a part of this, and that really put him in the inner circle. And one thing we don't know is exactly how Titus and Paul met. So a lot of scholars assume that Paul probably led Titus to Christ. There seems to be enough in the Bible that we could believe that. But whatever the case, a lot of people think that probably he met met him somewhere here, that there was activity that was taking place there, and that's where they met. And that wouldn't be a shock, would it? Because, again, here is Crete. Now, if Crete has any importance at all, look where it's located, what would it be? In Paul's day, if you traveled around, you did it mostly by water, and Crete was a stopping off point. So little Crete had four ports, and all of them were significant ports. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, if you traveled from Colossia to to Corinth, you were going to go by Crete. You probably were going to stop there for a period of time. I mean, if you ordered something from Amazon in Paul's day, it came through Crete. That's what I mean. I mean that that was going to be a significant jump off point. So what happens if Crete comes to Christ? 
What happened if the sailors in Crete, if the people in Crete who run the ports, if those people become Christians, what happens? The gospel spreads. So it turns out to be a strategic place in Paul's day for the spread of the gospel, and that's surely one of the reasons that he was really worried about it or concerned about it or or thought much about it. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we find a little more personal word about Titus. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I know some of you probably go, isn't that just the gospel of Jesus? Yes, with an edge. And the edge for Paul was that he was saying to the Gentiles, you don't have to convert to Judaism in order to become followers of Jesus. Now, if you're already a Jew, then you become a converted Jew. But for those of you who are Gentile believers, you don't need to to go round your elbow to get to your thumb. And he had a lot of people who opposed that idea, right? The Judaizers, as we call them, They wanted for people who became Christian to follow every jot and tittle of the law. They wanted them to continue to be circumcised, for example, to continue to follow the food laws, the Sabbath laws, all that kind of stuff. And Paul said, no, that is not the gospel of Jesus. That's not the freedom that is in Christ. So Paul is testing to see, have people really understand, understood this gospel? I wanted to be sure, you see, that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain that I hadn't been preaching this gospel and nobody was listening. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though what? He was a Greek. Now you may go, wait, what does this have to do with being a Greek? Well, the Judaizers were particularly powerful in Greece and the Greek Isles. So it was their brand of the gospel, if you will, that had taken hold. And, and Paul, in order to reach people outside of Judaism, he had to somehow convince people not to listen to people who wanted to hold on to their religious power in that way. Now, Crete was famously corrupt. It was a place settled by mercenaries, largely, mercenary soldiers and sailors. And so it was famously corrupt. And even Paul says this. So in Titus chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, he quotes a famous poet philosopher from Crete named Epimenides, and he says this. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Didn't mince any words there, did he? Okay, and these are his own people that Epimenides is talking about. So Paul quotes him. Your own people say this about you. Now, how many of you have ever heard the insult across the years? You're a Cretan. Had you heard that before? Now you know. Now you, oh, now you understand where this comes from. This saying is true, he says. This is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so they'll be sound in the faith. So Cretans had heard the gospel and Paul had visited them before. So let's see where, how we know that. Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 12, not going to read the whole thing, you know it. This is Pentecost. The apostles go out and they're preaching and everybody hears in their own language. All the Jews were in town because it was a high holy day. And as they arrived and this was occurring, a certain group of people are said to have heard in their own language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, read that one with me, Cretans and Arabs. So Cretans were there, Cretan Jews were there, and they heard the gospel as it was preached. 
We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They ask one another, what does this mean? Then in Acts chapter 27, we, f- we find this. Much time had been lost. What's happening? Paul's about to run into a storm. You remember the famous shipwreck? You've studied this before. This is it. This is right before it. Sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the day of atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo. I've always wondered why Paul got on the ship if he thought this, but anyway. And to our own lives also, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. The show must go on. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we would sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This harbor was in Crete. I don't know how many times Paul passed through Crete. I'm going to guess a lot. I don't know which time he left Titus behind. Nobody does. But despite the fact it's not mentioned often, if you went from point A to point B, you probably went through Crete because everybody did. And so it's likely he was there pretty often. Paul's primary concern in this instance is the health of the Cretan churches. He wants to make sure that those churches are islands of health and strength in what he considers an unhealthy culture. So I told you that the Cretan culture was rough. So consider being the church in a culture like this, okay? You got the hardliners to your right. You've got this group of Judaizers who are trying to squeeze the life out of the gospel. And on the other side, you've got this very coarse Cretan culture that's really intriguing. And the church is caught in the middle. It's in a vice. And so these churches have to be really well run. They've got to be really intentional about their mission and their ministry, Let me tell you one more thing about Crete that's kind of interesting. So those mercenary soldiers and sailors, all of them were well steeped in Greek mythology. Because if you'll remember, a lot of that mythology got played out in battle scenes, right? And so they were really interested in powers that came from higher power. And one of the things they were most interested in was attending to Zeus. Now you may say, well, what does Zeus have to do with Crete? Well, if you know your Greek mythology, where was Zeus born? You want to take a guess? On Crete. And Zeus is the head or the king of Mount Olympus. He's over all the gods, but he's also a trickster god. So one of the things that Paul's going to want to do is show the Cretans that a god they can trust who's faithful and true all the time, completely honest. Not like Zeus, who's always trying to trick you. You're always trying to figure him out. And so even the beliefs they had made them rough around the edges. Paul used the first third of his letter to prescribe a form of governance for the church. I'm going to have to fly through this, but I think you'll get it. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So at least one of the forms of governance and maybe the primary form of governance in the churches just beyond the early church was to put elders in every local congregation to govern the church. And that's what Paul wanted to happen in Crete or or the leadership team he created. 
An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, whose ring fingers are not longer than their pointer fingers. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group who are just trying to hang on to their own power by maintaining the Jewish law. These people must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. To be pure, to the pure, all things are pure, but for those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but their actions, they deny, by their actions, they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. Now, Every local church was to have elders to govern it. And the primary qualification of elders involved their character. This is a little interesting, okay? So they were to be exemplars of the faith. You do understand when you hear all those qualities that elders are supposed to have. You are a follower of Jesus Christ if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today. Raise your hand if you believe you're also supposed to have all those same qualities. Yes, it's all of us. But the elders are to be exemplars. Deacons are to be exemplars. Pastors are to be exemplars of these qualities we're all supposed to have as followers of Jesus. But when the Bible talks about pastors, often we're supposed to have a certain gift mix. So I'm supposed to have the capacity to teach. Depending on the weekend, you might decide I do or I don't. I'm supposed to have the capacity to lead. But when we talk about elders, no gifts are mentioned It's just the fruits of the Spirit. Do you understand that not everybody has to have all the gifts, but all of us are supposed to have all the fruits all the time. Every believer is fruity all the time. So when we get to the end of the day, it's the character qualifications of these elders that are most important. These are our elders. Brent Walker's our chair. Sammy Barr's our vice chair. Mandy Torgerson's our secretary. I, Brett Flanders, and Laura Gravitt are the three teaching elders on this team. We do not have a vote. By our choice, when we led the church to do this, I just said, if a pastor needs a vote to influence a group, something's wrong. So Bruce Barr, Nelson Carcamo, Jim Fry, John Guidi, Robin Hissong, Doug Yeager, Kathy James, Meg Caleb, David Stoner. Those are our current elders. I'm going to tell you, man, these are high virtue, high quality, remarkable people. And if you could watch them work... They are doing an amazing job. They're just doing an incredible job. And it's a good thing I like them because that's my boss. Representing you, that's who I'm accountable to. And I'm so grateful to have that check and balance, to have that accountability. It makes all the difference. Now, Epistle to Titus, uh, Paul uses his middle third to talk about what the church is to be. So this is to define the counterculture of the church in an unhealthy culture. 
I can't read it all, but you can go read it yourself. Here's what the young men are supposed to be like. The young women are supposed to be like. The old women, the old men. Titus, this is how you're to lead them. He even deals with slaves. And, and that material's been used, misused a lot because remember Philemon? Paul believed that if the gospel took hold, slavery would be abolished by the presence of the gospel. It'd be totally different. You'd treat your slaves a brother not a slave. And so he didn't worry about overturning society's methodologies. He wanted the church to fit into the society and then transform it by its influence. So he talks about all these things, and then he gives the most famous part of Titus, what's become the most famous part. This is where the power to live like this comes from. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, right, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, Titus, O pastor. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. It's what a pastor has to do. Don't let anyone despise you for it. Now, once that's done, once we establish that this healthy church has a powerful counterculture that's formed by the love and grace of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, once that is true, the next question Paul has, and this is his missionary strategy, healthy church, powerful counterculture, integrated into the broader culture. So chapter three, he spends telling people, this is how you're to live in your culture so that you can share this gospel so that you can impact it with this counterculture of the church. Does that make sense? So chapter three, he talks about how we live in the culture. Remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities. Be good citizens. Be obedient. Be ready to do whatever is good. Whatever is good. We call it the common good in the Christian faith, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Do you think these are qualities our culture needs to see right now? This is the, this is the counterculture being integrated into the culture. This is how we treat our neighbors and coworkers and other people who are around. At one time, we too were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived, just like these people are. We were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, what is Paul saying here? Have some empathy for the unbelieving world around you. Grace hasn't changed them yet, but it can. And how do we know? Because it changed you. Have some hope for what the gospel can do. Even with these people who are living around you, be empathic, empathetic toward them. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Now, do you see what Paul's doing here? He's juxtaposing this against the poetry of Epimenides. That was a trustworthy saying about people who haven't yet been saved by grace. This is a trustworthy saying about what the gospel of Jesus can do. The gospel changes what? Everything. 
It's a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have entrusted, uh, those who have entrusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent. They're profitable for everyone. Avoid in the culture around you, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. Now, I want, I want you to see here what Paul's saying. Avoid stupid arguments about politics. That is what he's saying. Because these are unprofitable, they're useless. Warn a divisive person once, that is somebody in your church who's being dismissive in the community. Warn them once and even give them a second warning. But if they keep on, put them out because you want people representing your church who are showing people the power of the gospel. You may be sure that such people, they're warped and sinful, they're self-condemned. Now, Paul's mints no words here, has he? Look at the strategy. Healthy church, well-run, well-managed, well-governed, an island of health and strength, a place of healthy relationship, love, compassion, trust, a place where people don't gossip and backbite, where they treat each other with dignity. If you've ever been part of a church that wasn't like that, you can tell the difference in Columbia. We've worked at it, and you made it this way. You did. You made it this way. So grateful to you for this. I love a healthy church. So Paul says a healthy church with a powerful counterculture shaped by Christ, integrated into the broader culture because we are good citizens, good neighbors. We're good friends. And that changes, that changes the situation of the unhealthy culture. But please remember this, only healthy churches can change unhealthy cultures. An unhealthy church cannot change an unhealthy culture. It just looks like it. When we pull the unhealth from out there into here, this is what in but not of is all about. When we do that, we bring the disease into the hospital. And when that happens, people can't get well here anymore. Does that make sense? Only healthy churches. And this is why I care so much about our being healthy, well-governed, well-led, about our relating to each other rightly. Only healthy churches can change unhealthy cultures. Let me show you something cool. This is our discipleship model. The identity of Christ, the identity of the disciple integrated intentionally into our spheres of influence, which means into the culture. What does that look like to you? That is Paul's missionary strategy. When you make disciples in this way, you change the culture in this way. Make sense? The identity of Christ integrated into our spheres of influence in the surrounding culture because wherever you go, you are Columbia and you are the body of Christ. Identity, integration, influence. You'll see it again and again in Scripture if you'll look for it. It's all over the place. This is God's strategy through Jesus Christ, his son, to change the world. It's really that that simple. But please, 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 if you remember anything today, remember this. Only healthy churches can change unhealthy cultures. There was once an old wise man. Everyone in the village went to him for advice. Some people, though, doubted him. And one young man, particularly cynical, thought that people put him a little too much on a pedestal. He wanted to teach him a lesson. And so he devised a trick, a strategy to fool the old wise man. Here was the trick. He would carry a live bird in his hand. He'd go to the old man and he'd say to him, tell me, wise one, does the, hand, does the bird in my hand live or does it die? 
If the man said it was dead, then he would release it and show it to be alive. But if the wise man said it was alive, then he'd squeeze it to death, open his hand and drop it to the ground and show it to be dead. He laughed to himself as he thought of how clever he was to fool the wise one. He went to the old man with the bird in his hand. He said to him, wise man, does the bird in my hand live or does it die? And the wise old man looked at him and said, (laughs) oh, son, it is as you will it. It is as you will it. When it comes to the health of a church, it is as you will it. It's a thousand little habits, a thousand little denials of self. It's a thousand little things that add up to make us a place of virtue, an island of health and strength. Paul's concern was that the church in Crete become, quite literally, an island of health and strength that radiated the gospel for anyone who passed through. And our goal is that Columbia and any church we touch should be an island of health and strength, a place of hope and healing that anyone who passes through takes the gospel with them along the way. Pretty good strategy. It is as you will it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this fascinating little piece of church history that is Titus and for everything that we learn from it. We thank you for the virtue of our leaders and, in fact, for the virtue of disciples here. I thank you, Lord, for the health of this congregation, for the way people love each other. And I pray that you would make us, oh, Heavenly Father, and our families, our homes, our workplaces, make us islands of health and strength in an incredibly and increasingly unhealthy culture. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.